And I'm going to pray as you guys open it up to John 8. Father, I pray that you use me to speak your words, that you give me the Holy Spirit to teach and to preach, to cause people to, to think about you, Jesus. It's all about you. You're our cornerstone. We're founded in you. Everything is about you, Jesus. And as we go through this scripture, it just, everything points to you. And how can we get around it? You are the one that we come to for salvation and for wisdom and for guidance, for everything. So, Father, we come to worship you tonight through the word. I pray as I stand up here that you, you get me excited about your word, Father, that um, it would change my life up here and, and it would change other people's lives sitting in these seats or however they're listening, whether it's a webcast or on a podcast later. Or, Lord, that you would do a work because it's your word. So help me deliver it. In Jesus' name, amen. Eric talked about, again, John 7 last week. It's important to just reiterate sort of the scene so we can get into the scene, so you can feel what's going on, you can feel the passion, you can feel the emotion. It's an exciting time in Jerusalem at this time when Jesus hits the scene. Um, it's a big event that's going on. We catch that from the very beginning of chapter 7. Jesus is up in the Galilee region, and this, he's probably already two and a half years into his ministry when chapter 7 hits. And his brothers have seen, they have heard all the miracles that Jesus had been performing. He's, they've heard the, the teaching, but they didn't believe him. His own blood brothers didn't believe him. And they start patronizing him a little bit. So it's like, hey, it's the, a big feast that's going on in Jerusalem. And it is a huge feast. It's one of the three mandatory feasts that all the male uh, Jews had to go to. It's a pilgrimage feast. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the last one of the year. It's the fall one. And Jesus was to, to go there as long with the brothers. Any good Jew would go to the Feast of Tabernacles. They would all go to Jerusalem. And, it, and they were just patronizing him. Why don't you go there? Why don't you speak and do your thing? You know? and, and, and Jesus, he's like, you know, you guys go ahead. Then he ends up going secretly anyways. But it kind of draws me back to the Joseph story. When Joseph's brothers were just so jealous of him and so angry because Joseph was like the favorite child to the father, Jacob. And we kind of see the scene. It's like they're jealous. Jesus has this amazing relationship with the father and they can't figure this whole thing out. And they're like, why don't you just go to Jerusalem and do your thing? Everybody should hear about it. Jesus, go. Well, he does. He ends up going. And we need to understand that this is a biblical command from Leviticus, that the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me just share with you you can, if you want, you can turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Who thought that we would be in Leviticus tonight, right? But Leviticus chapter 23 is a very important passage of Scripture for all of us as Christians. We need to know what was going on. Um, and so the Lord said, spoke to Moses, this is verse 33. So the Lord speaking to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of the Tabernacles, for seven days to the Lord. 
On the first day, there should be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days, you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And on the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. Go down to 39. And on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. On the eighth, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourself on the first day the, first, the fruit of the beautiful trees, the branches, palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in a year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. So forever this was supposed to happen. A statute for your generations forever. You shall celebrate it on the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths or tents for seven days. All you or all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. You understand the importance of this feast? This was an everlasting covenant to the children of Israel. And so when they're going to celebrate this, what they're doing, they're commemorating the time from when they left Egypt for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, and God did amazing things for the children of Israel. Amazing things. And they are to draw attention to all those amazing things. The manna, the light, the, the Shekinah glory, the cloud that was leading them in the day, and the, the pillar of fire at night. And all the things that happened in the wilderness. They're, they're celebrating that time, and they were tabernacled with God. The tabernacle dwelt in the midst of them. So God was in the midst of them for those 40 years, and they saw his Shekinah glory in that tabernacle. They really understood who God was because they could really almost see him without seeing a physical body, but they saw his manifestations in a way we never have. And so that's the point of this feast. Sometimes you hear it called the Feast of Tabernacle, and sometimes it's the Feast of Booths. Either one, but the point is they were dwelling in tents for 40 years, and so... They were going to Jerusalem now, where the temple was, and everybody in the city was putting up a tent. And so it was like a big, huge camp-out party in Jerusalem for seven days here. So you can think the scene is probably fun because you have all these people coming, your cousins, your family, or whoever's coming. Everybody's going to celebrate this thing, and we're going to praise the Lord. Okay? And this is where Jesus comes in on the last day. We know he's there. He's just kind of hanging out. But on the last day in chapter 7 is a big day. It's a huge celebration. They're doing the drink offerings and everything on the altar. They're sacrificing. They're burning all the sacrifices. And he stands up. He says, you who are thirsty, come to me, and I'll give you the living water. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, what was that all about? They were wandering around the wilderness, and they were thirsty, and then water came out of the rock flowed, gushing out of the rock, two times we know of. And in the Old Testament, Jesus is always considered the rock. 
And that was a foreshadow of things to come, that he's the rock. He's the one who's going to give out the living water. And then when he says this, I don't know if they're totally connecting it or not, but the point that John is making and what Jesus is always making is, I am the God in the New Testament that has manifested himself in the midst of you all in human flesh. And he's going to prove it. In the Gospel of John, that's what he is set out to do, is to prove that this is the God of the Old Testament that has come and tabernacled in the midst of us in flesh. That's the point of John. So if you can get that in your minds when you're reading the book of John, it all just comes together, and you're just always going back to this Old Testament imagery, and Jesus saying, that was me. That was me the whole time, the whole time. And so chapter one, or verse 1 well, let's start in uh, 753, John chapter 753. He causes a little ruckus with this whole, come to me if you're thirsty, I'll give you, I'll give you the water that's living, gushing out of your heart. It caused a little ruckus with uh, the Jewish leaders. They didn't know what to do with him, but then everybody goes home at night. And it says in 53, everybody went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's where he spent the night. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now I love to be able to try to get myself in the scene and picture it, and so I, I, I put some pictures up here, and hopefully they come up. Let's see if we can get them to come up. Chris, can the pictures come up here? There's a few slides. Is there any way we can get them on that one too? on the sides. Well, let's see what happens. There we go. Hopefully, some of you I know in the back can't see that. I got about 10 slides or so. If you want to move forward, you come on, come on up front. Um, if you were to look at the temple, the Temple Mount, what you would see right now is a huge Muslim mosque. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's a very sacred place for a Muslim, right? Go to the next slide. But that wasn't always the case. That was the Temple Mount right here. This was what they were really, if you walked into Jerusalem, go to the next slide, see if it pans in a little higher. See that? That's where the temple was. That's the Holy of Holies. That's where everybody is at. This is where Jesus is at right now. This is a very, very important place to the Jewish people, especially in this day. This is God dwelling amongst them. Go to the next slide. Oh, go back one more slide. Go back one more. Okay, do one more. <laughs> there we go. So if you were to look at the Temple Mount right here, and if you were to go to the bottom right, that's the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus was staying the night, the night before. And so he would be up in the hills back there in the Mount of Olives. Now go ahead and move forward. So this is the eastern wall right here, and on the left-hand side is the southern wall. That's the main entrance. Go to the next slide. And so he would have entered from the left-hand side that next morning. And he would have taken a right, and he would have worked his way around back to the bottom on our slide. If you see the temple, there's a door there. It's called the beautiful gate. Go to the next slide. And he would have walked right in there. Next slide. And he would, this is the beautiful gate. This is to get into the temple. And if you were to walk up to this in Jesus' time, there was a little placard on these, this concrete wall that surrounded the whole, the whole temple and it says, Gentiles, stay out. That's what it said. And Jesus, he wasn't a Gentile. He could walk right on in there. Next slide. 
And this is where he's at, and this is where he's teaching this teaching right now. This is called the court of women. Ironically, women were only allowed in this court if they were giving their tithes. But they weren't allowed in here. They were to, if you look up at the top of the right, there's a balcony. They would hang out up there. But this is where a lot of teaching went. A lot of the Levites, next slide, they would, have, they would have been teaching here, and they would have been teaching on those steps. We know Jesus was here teaching, probably on those steps, this message right here, because in verse 20, he says he's in the treasury. The court of women is the treasury. And on the left-hand side and the right-hand side of those steps, there's these offering boxes, and that's where... All men who wants to get into the temple, they would have to give you a half shekel, uh, the temple a half shekel to get in. It's a tax, temple tax. When Jesus was referring to the widow and the two mites, he was right here and he watched her give her money into the offering boxes right here. Next slide. And this would have been Jesus' view. Everybody's gathered together right here listening to Jesus on this day. To help you out a little bit, you can kind of see. I'm sorry for those in the back if you couldn't catch that. Um, now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. In the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, and which is true. It did say it does say that. But what do you say? And they said, this they said, testing him, as they're testing Jesus, these scribes and these Pharisees, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So Jesus is up, or he's actually sitting down teaching on those steps. Everybody's listening, and here comes a big ruckus coming through the gates. They're bringing this woman in who's been caught in adultery. And it says that he stooped down, so this must have been some sort of an intense scene because for him to stoop down, he had to stand back up. He was addressing the group standing up now with this woman. And he said, they caught him in adultery. What do you say about this, Jesus? And he just sits down, and he stoops down, and he starts riding on the ground. We don't know what he was riding. There's a lot of speculation, but I'm not going to go into it. He was just sit down there just riding on the ground. And all the whole crowd is probably sitting there in silence like, what's going on? We're here to hear this amazing teacher, and they got these scribes and these Pharisees, these people with power of the temple. They're in here messing with Jesus. He's commanded an audience. And I'm sure it was a tense scene at this point. As though he didn't hear it, so when they continued asking him, so they had to ask him. He was just kind of ignoring them, messing with them, right? He raised himself up and said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. I'm sure that this scene lasted quite a while. It did, because then it goes on to say, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. So these scribes and Pharisees, the oldest one, the elder of the group, was so convicted that he just turns around and he starts walking out. 
And then the arrest start walking out behind him. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And the crowd is sitting there. There's no scribes, no Pharisees. This woman, who knows, where's the guy that she was caught with? They don't even think of, like, where's he at? Because he had consequences too. And it says that in the Old Testament. They have consequences just like the woman does. You see, they're trying to catch Jesus in this dilemma here. Because if Jesus says, no, don't do anything, then he's going against the law. But if he says, do something, well, in this time, the Romans had authority. Jews could not execute anyone. It had to be through Roman authority. Hence, when Jesus had to go in front of Pilate because the, Romans could, or because the Jewish people couldn't kill him. Right? And so, instead of addressing either of that, he just gets straight down into their conscience and says, are you without sin? Because you've got to remember, just a week prior, a week and a half prior, this was the Day of Atonement. That's when everybody comes and says, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And they just had just gotten through the Day of Atonement. And the, their sin was right on their hearts and their minds, and they just walk out, they can't say anything. And when Jesus had raised himself up, saw that no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to, spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's not saying you're right for what you're doing. She was definitely caught in adultery. She's caught in sin. But isn't it interesting that the, the one person that she is to stand before, these Pharisees who are trying to accuse her, actually brought her to God. And he's the one that can forgive sins, and they don't even realize it. They're trying to condemn her, and he's just like, I, he could see it in her heart. I don't condemn you anymore. Don't just... Get rid of that lifestyle. Sin no more. Don't do this anymore. And she goes out saved. And then he says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. On the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, this is important for you to understand, because the last night and every night of the Feast of Tabernacles, they're always commemorating and thinking about how God brought them through the wilderness. And it was a fire by night, a pillar of fire. So wherever that pillar of fire went, they went. And they were safe if they followed that fire in the sky. It's supernatural. And so if you can go back to the slides real fast, if it's not too big of a problem. Every night, they would light these candelabrum. There was four of them in the court of women. And the Levites in that temple every day would just take tons and tons of um, olive oil and put them in top of the candelabrums. And so at night they would light them and it would just light up the entire sky. History says that it would just illuminate all of Jerusalem. Everybody could see it. And there's Jesus on that last day and the disciples, I don't think you can get it back up, but that, there they are. You see them? There's four of them in each corner. There's two in the front and there's two in the back. And those things would just be roaring with fire. And people would be dancing and singing around them. And on that day, that next day, Jesus is sitting there teaching him. 
And he's saying, I am the light of the world. He's bringing them back again into the Old Testament saying, I was the one who had the fire. I was the fire. I was providing that. And those people must have been sitting there. If it was clicking with them, they're thinking, this has to be God in human flesh, standing, sitting right in front of me teaching. Now, if that was you, you would probably just have the, 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 the holy goosebumps that's going all over you, right? Because you just connected that there's God standing right in front of me. He is the fire at night. He's the one who is the living water. He's the bread of life. He's everything. And here he is sitting here teaching me. And these scribes and these Pharisees, I think they're starting to pick it up. And they just want to go after Jesus. And they go four rounds with Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about right here. In 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. And Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of myself. And then they said to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know, neither my, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And these words Jesus spoke in the treasury, and he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. So he was sitting there teaching these people, now the Pharisees are being taught. And they're just sitting, all these people are sitting back, probably listening to all this stuff. And these Pharisees and Jesus are just going to go at it. And then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They weren't clicking. They didn't have the Spirit of God moving in them. They couldn't understand him. And he, so the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from beneath, and I am from above. They're not, at this point, he's not saying you're from hell. He's saying you're from this earth. That's what that, that, that part means. Instead of beneath, it means earth. And I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. So if you guys have that little sticker on the back of your car, not of this world, or whatever, that's where it comes from right here right here. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Is that about as black as white as you get? Is there any doubt in your mind, church, that Jesus is the way? If Jesus is standing up here preaching this, he would say, I am the way. If you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. And we got this whole garbage of relative truth and all this stuff. There's many ways to God. Jesus is one and there's other ways. Right here, this tells me Jesus is the way. If you don't believe in me, Jesus says, you're going to die in your sin. And they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning, 
I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which heard from me. So 27, they do not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. And then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Another Old Testament story, Numbers 21. What happens when the children of Israel are just so frustrated at this point, and they're just like, I was in Egypt, and I was fine in Egypt, and you brought me out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? And God gets frustrated, and it says that he sent fiery serpents among them. And they start, and if a fiery serpent bites you, you're going to die. And people started dying, and they all come to Moses and start repenting, saying, tell God to quit this. And so God tells Moses, you make for yourself a serpent, like a bronze serpent or whatnot, and you put it on a pole, and you put it up in the midst of all the Israelites. You, you put it on the pole, and you have to put it up. And if they believe by faith, my word is, if they see this pole, and they look at this, and then by faith they say, I believe that God can deliver me from all these fiery serpents, then they can be freed from, from dying from these snake bites. And sure enough, when Moses put that pole up with that serpent on there, people were, they were living because they had to look to it by faith. And that was, that was imagery, foreshadowing of something to come, that if Jesus was to be on the cross, you lift him up, and you look at that, and you see that, and you believe it by faith, your sin is taken away. And we know that serpent, it was a, sin, it was a thing of sin. We see that in the scriptures. And Jesus became our sin on the cross. We see that in John 3, when Nicodemus and Jesus are going at it, and he says, I was that in essence, I was that serpent that was raised up in Numbers 21. And so anytime that Jesus says, I was gonna be, I'm going to be lifted up, he says it several times in the book of John, he's always referring back to Numbers 21. Again, Jesus is always trying to show everyone that he is the God of the Old Testament. What verse am I on here? I start talking and I would lose my place. 28. 29. And then he's, he who sent me is with me. And the Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. And then Jesus spoke to the Jews who believed him. If you abide in my word, he's saying to these Jews. He's speaking to those who believe in him. If you abide in my word, you are disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's what he's saying to those who believe. The truth, the word of God, if you believe by faith in the word of God and the direction that's pointing you, you will be set free. You will be saved. That's what he's saying. And, and they answered him. Now it's probably the Pharisees going at it. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free. And Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, 
because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do, you do what you have seen with your, with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father in God. They're probably put a a finger in Jesus' face because I'm sure they're tracking with Jesus. Who was his father? This whole issue with Joseph and Mary and all this thing, and they realize he's probably the illegitimate father, or Joseph is the illegitimate father, or they had uh, premarital sex or something like that, and they're trying to stick a finger in Jesus' face. And then Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth, and I came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no such in him. There's no truth in the devil, he's saying. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's what he's saying about their father, who's Satan. It's the father of lies. Do we know Satan's the father of lies? But because I tell you the truth, he says in 45, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory, for there is one who seeks and judges. And most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. The prophets and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, you shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, that they're saying, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? You see this? If you were in the middle, if you were in this temple court, and you're, you're just hearing this conversation just going back and forth, back and forth, and they're accusing Jesus of this, and Jesus answers, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you, do, you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet even 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's a huge statement. That's a huge statement. You go back into the Old Testament, and God's speaking to Moses, and he says, you need to go back and get the children of Israel. And Moses is like, well, who do, you, who do I say you are? He's like, I am that I am. That's his name, I am. 
And all through the gospel of John, Jesus is always saying, I am. So what do you think the point of John's message is? To prove that Jesus is God, the one who says, I am. The one who told Moses directly, go get the children. The one who gave Moses the law on the mountain. Mount Sinai. The one who was the rock, who provided the light at night, the pillar of cloud during the day. He's the one who resounded with them in the and stuck around with them in the tabernacle, in their midst. That's the point. And as soon as he said that, those Jews knew exactly what he was saying. And look what they tried to do. And they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and passed, up, passed by. They couldn't kill him. It was in his time. I read a lot of passage there because it's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But we must understand the Old Testament to understand this. When you read the Old Testament, you see all these symbolism, all the symbolism and, and, and what's going to happen in the future. We're looking at a rock that's pouring out water. We know that's going to be the savior of the world. He represents the rock, the man of the bread of life. We see that. In John chapter one, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. And here's God at the Feast of Tabernacles sitting here. And they're going back and forth about Abraham. Abraham. Why Abraham? Because he's the father of many nations. God gave him that promise. He is our spiritual father. He's the Jews' spiritual father. Even to the Muslims, he's a spiritual father. When we talk about Abraham, we have to understand all the promises God gave Abraham to understand this passage of Scripture here. And we know that when God said to, to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child, and through the seed of that child, you're going to bless all the nations. You'll be the father of many nations through that child. But they got anxious and didn't trust in the word. And, Ab and Sarah says to Abraham, here's my bondservant from Egypt, Hagar, a slave. Sleep with her, have a child, and this is going to be the child of promise. So he does it. He commits sin. And because of that, we have Ishmael. And then Ishmael, is, he's older than, next thing you know, Isaac comes along, which is the one that was promised. That was the one that was, they were supposed to wait for by faith. But now Abraham has a problem on his hands. He has this child that he loves, Ishmael, who represents Slavery, a child of a bondservant, and then you have the free son, Isaac. And then we know that God tells Abraham, take Isaac to Mount Moriah, and that's where you're going to sacrifice. And it's a faith issue going on. He takes his son because God says, take him and sacrifice the one son. But he knew this was the child of promise. I'm going to take him up there. And if I'm going to kill my son and God can bring him back to life because this is the promised child, not Ishmael. And so he goes, he's about ready to kill Isaac. And then God says, stop. And he provides the ram. He provides the sacrifice. Right? Where do you think Mount Moriah was? Right below the temple. Right below the temple. The temple is built on top of Mount Moriah. Isn't that crazy? 
when you start linking all this together, and they want to get into an argument about Abraham with him. And he's just like, right below this, Abraham tried to sacrifice his son in obedience, and God said, no, I'm going to provide the ram, an innocent, helpless male animal, for your sacrifice. And Jesus is that. He was the one who said, do not uh, do not uh, take out your son. That was Jesus' voice to Abraham. And then, well, here's the interesting thing. This is the whole prophecy kind of thing going on. What stands on the Temple Mount now? It's the, rock, you know, the, the Dome of the Rock and the other mosque, another mosque that's there. And the Muslims have it. Through the line of Ishmael, is the Arab nations. And he says, I'm going to protect Hagar and I'm going to protect Ishmael. And Ishmael will have descendants upon descendants. He'll have 12 tribes too. He's going to be all over the world, right? And they are those of slavery. They're in bondage. And we are of the free land, the free reign because we are through Isaac. And right on top of the temple mount today, Muslims worship on top of that temple mount. If you're trying to tell me at the end time prophecy stuff that's going on that doesn't have anything to do with it, Muslims, you're crazy, right? You can just see it. It's, this, it's remarkable how God has this whole thing played out. But he says in, in um, chapter 12 of Genesis, no, you're to go to be a blessing to the nations. And we're seeing Muslims come to Christ all over the place in dreams and visions like we've never seen before. God is on the move and he's blessing even the line of Ishmael and he wants to use us to go get them. And when we don't, he's going to give them dreams and he's going to give them visions. And you're seeing all throughout the Muslim world, people are coming to Christ. They're coming to Christ, but there's a huge battle. There's a huge battle that's going on. But I read this passage of scripture and what's the application? Yes, we can see that through Jesus, there's salvation. John is proving that he is the Messiah. He is the one to come. He is the one that the Old Testament was always pointing to. But my application I have for this Jesus is who he is. And by faith, he is the one. He descended. He emptied himself of his glory, came down to earth, dwelt amongst us in human flesh, and did so many remarkable things. The book of John, the last verses says, if I were to record him in all the books, all the books in the world couldn't hold all the amazing things Jesus did in just three years. That's why we are saved today, because how amazing he was. He not only proclaimed with authority the word of God, he was revealing in remarkable ways his power, and he had power upon power all in the same time. Just teaching it, and he combined it with his power, and he was bringing this Old Testament imagery, and he was just laying on top and says, this was me the whole time, that was me the whole time, I'm finally here, I'm going to teach you about it. And People just came to Christ, and we're still coming to Christ, and we're sitting here t- talking about this 2,000-something years later because he's so amazing. Only through Christ can you know the Father's heart. Only through Christ, the face of Christ, can you see the Father. We know that the disciples are like, Jesus, show us the Father. He's like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything goes through Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's when we study him, we seek him, we sing to him, we are in truth in everything. Our life is 
rightly ordered, in line, in place with Jesus. It's the truth. And if we think that we can do anything in and of ourselves to get to heaven, we're mistaken. You cannot get enough of Jesus. You can't study him enough. You can't thank him enough. That was God's plan, is to reveal Jesus to us. And when I sit here and I read this, it's just more confirmation. This is why I come to him, for the forgiveness of sin. This is who I come to when I need help, when I need mercy. This is what I come to when I can't figure out how to treat someone. It's like, how did you do it? And I go and I study him, and he just does the work. We worship Jesus. If you want an application point for tonight's message, Jesus is God, and there's nowhere else to look. He's the one. And that's a reason to sing and a reason to rejoice. Amen? Amen? Amen. I get excited talking about Jesus because he's just, he's amazing. And when he died, right before he died, he said, you know what, disciples? You are to keep the Lord's Supper. Why? Because you are to remember. Often, Paul tells us to do communion often that my body was broken and my blood was shed for you in the remission of sins. I can look to him. And when I do communion, I think about him, I sing to him, I pray to him, and I enter into communion with him. And that's something that we are to do because it should remind us of what he has done for us. He paid the ultimate price. Every Wednesday night we do communion. And sometimes it can be routine, but we need to make sure we come with a fresh heart and a fresh mind He came and he actually died for us. The ultimate price. And as we partake of of the elements, the bread and 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 the grape juice, it reminds us of what he has done for us. And there's some of you here, you, you, you read through this, and several times it says, apart from Jesus, there's no salvation. You will die in your sins. And I came to that realization myself one day. When I was 23, this is real. Jesus says it right here. Apart from him, there's no salvation. In him, there's a remission of sins. You cannot get to the Father because we're sinners. Only through Jesus and his holy and righteousness that covers us from, if we look to the cross when he's raised up, and it says, I believe in that, that my sin was taken upon the cross when he was nailed to the cross and my sins are forgiven then that's when you enter into a relationship with God. And that should radically change your life. Radically. It should change the direction of how you, the the way you're going and how you view life. Your worldview should change. It's all about God and his kingdom and it's about Jesus. And so there is a cost to it. There's no one who's going to get to heaven unless you humble yourself first. If you want to be exalted, you must humble yourself first, the scripture says. And to humble yourself means that you have to admit that you're a sinner and you're not good enough. And only through Jesus are you good enough. And so he says, come to me. Come to me. And you can be good enough. And if that's you, come to us. We're going to be, the pastor's going to be on the side of the stage. He's here and we'll pray with you. And if you need prayer for anything, please come. We're going to um, have Sam come out and he's going to lead us in some, some worship songs and we just come and we'll take communion together and we'll worship together. We'll praise Jesus together. Amen.